0: Well, I'd like to begin today by talking about uh, just a little review. Uh, we've been doing a sermon series called The Real Jesus. And for several weeks, here at this church, PAC City... We've been digging underneath 2,000 years of church history and religious tradition to try to understand who the real Jesus is and what he was all about. And we've looked in the past few weeks, we've looked at Jesus as teacher, as healer, as social revolutionary. And today we're going to talk about one of the things about Jesus that tends to be the most shocking and countercultural, among all the roles he ever played, the most countercultural roles he ever assumed. So I'd like to begin today uh, by talking about power. And if you'd like to follow along on the screens, you can. I have some. And also in your uh, worship guide, there's some notes for you. You can fill in those blanks if you'd like. Uh, What is power? Well, power is the ability to influence a person or a situation. I don't know what you think about when you think about power. Perhaps you think of political power. When President Trump was elected, he immediately ascended into a major amount of power. Or you think maybe think of a different kind of elected official. Maybe you don't think of political figures. Maybe you think of someone who's a Fortune 500 or Fortune 50 like CEO. They have a tremendous amount of power. Maybe you don't think of someone in the corporate world or like in politics. Maybe you think of someone here in Los Angeles who has an incredible amount of power due to their celebrity or because they know how to make people famous and they're behind the scenes and no one really knows their name, but they have an incredible amount of power and making things happen in the entertainment industry. Well, power is the ability to influence a person or a situation. In the dictionary, if you look it up, it'll say something like this. It's the ability to do something or act in a particular way, especially as a faculty or quality. And the second definition is the capacity or ability to direct or influence the behavior of others or the course of events. And here's what we know about power. Power can be both situational and recurring. What do I mean? Situational. I've noticed that in certain situations, I have power or I have influence. I have been a part of an incredible team that has helped start this church. There's a number of people who helped start this. We're only like 31 weeks old, and I love it. I love every bit of it. But because of that, and because I get up and talk for 30 minutes or more every week, that's put me in a position of influence. And every once in a while, people listen to what I say. But if I was to leave this room and go to a dinner party with my wife, with the other parents of marins or daughter's school, if I walk into that room, the situation changes and I have like zero power. And if people go, what do you do for a living? And i go, well, I'm a pastor. They go, oh, well, isn't that interesting? <laughs> and, I, and they're like, so do you like that? Did you do that on purpose? You chose to be a pastor? And, like, and I go, yeah, I did. And I start going into it. And they're like, you can tell they're already looking over my shoulder because they have no idea what to make of a pastor. It's a great way to end any conversation instantly. Just say you're a pastor. So uh, <laughs> situational. Depending on the situation, I have power. What we also know about power is that it's not just situational. It's recurring. Think of your own life. There are things in your life that you can do regularly and you tend to have power or influence when you do those things. One of those things for me, whether you believe it or not, is I can to do a witty banter thing. And I can get a room laughing, maybe not this room right now, it's just gonna go terribly if I try to say that. But in other rooms, if I'm in a room and I can get people going, I can, I can get people laughing, I can get people uh, like kind of feeling good in, in, in a room, and uh, I can derail, I found this out, very young age, I can derail any meeting. In less than five seconds. I just know how to do it. I can do it. I can just totally derail it. uh, With what I have to say or whatever. And it's not that difficult for me. You have other things that you can do. You can step in. Maybe you can say the really uh, envisioning thing. Or maybe you're very. uh, Like you say. Here's what the problem is. And everyone's like. Yeah you're absolutely right. There's some situations. You and I both walk into. Where our power is recurrent. So let me ask you a question. Uh, Have you ever had. A little bit of power. Truth is, everybody has moments of power every once in a while. For instance, in leadership, some of us have leadership positions. We have management positions in our work. And every once in a while, everybody who's sitting around the table is wondering what we are going to do and what we are going to say. We have a little power. Sometimes we have power when it comes to our money. We've got a little bit of coin and there's a situation or a cause that needs that money. Then, you know, we have a little bit of power. Uh, Maybe it's with our personality. When we're quite likable, people enjoy being around us. We know how to work a room. Dare I say we're popular. uh, We have a little power. And even situationally, we have power every once in a while. Every once in a while, we have a coworker, a friend, or a family member that we've been nice to, we've been generous to, and they have been ungrateful towards us. They owe us an apology. They know it. We know it. In that moment, in that situational moment, we have a little bit of power. But here's the tension. We've all seen people use their power and abuse their power. We've seen people use their and abuse their power in personal relationships, in their marriages, with their children, at work, with their friendships. And sometimes we think, oh, maybe it'll be good if I use my power the way I want to in a certain way in a certain moment. But we know that doesn't work. It doesn't work out in the long run. In the long run, it affects the health and the quality of our relationships. But here's the other thing about power. Power becomes important. Once we realize we have it, power becomes important once we realize we have it, now there's two groups of you that are here this morning. There's group number one group. Number one is you would say to yourself, yeah, I've got a little bit of power. And as I have defined power for you so far, you say, yeah, that's me. I got a little power, it may not be a ton, but I have a little. And perhaps you were right, and they were wrong, and everyone knows it. And if you surveyed all your friends, they would totally agree with you and your point of view. Maybe it's not about a situation, maybe you've got a few friends, maybe you've got a little bit of money in your pocket, maybe you've got a little influence. Maybe you're the boss at work, and you're in a position, or maybe you're even in a position of leadership in this church. That's the first group. Now, the second group is, as I've been talking about power for the past past few minutes, you would say, I don't feel like I have any power. And as I have defined power for you, you do not feel, you don't feel it like you have a position of power. And that's okay. I still need you to listen to me. Listen to me. You may not feel like you have any power now, but you will. Eventually, there will come a time where you will have a little bit of power. You will have influence. You will be entitled to something in a relationship. Somebody will owe you something. And you will or you'll finally get the promotion. You'll finally become the boss. And you will become a leader, maybe in this church or some other sphere of influence. They will be be wrong. You will be right. And you will have a little bit of power. That day is coming. And for both groups, whether you feel like you have power right now or whether you feel like you don't have power, I want to ask you the same question. In that moment... When you realize that you have the upper hand in a situation, when you feel that like you've got the power, when you are in charge, when you know that you can win in whatever you're doing, when you were right all along, what are you going to do when it dawns on you that you're the most powerful person in the room? Because at some point you will be in a room and there will be other people in that room. And you will realize that everybody is not looking to the left or the right. They are looking to you. And maybe you'll be the boss. Maybe you'll be the smartest person in the room. You might even be in that room and have the longest track record of making the best decisions because of your unmatched ability to make decisions and make the tough calls. And in that moment, in that room, all the faces and all the eyes will look to you. They will turn to you. And they will look to you for answers and they will be asking you what you think. And you will have all the influence. It is in this exact moment. It is in this exact time that this one day, this time will come for you. It is in this moment of realization. The moment that you can def- decide the fate of a situation that you know, you've got the upper hand, the advantage. It's in this moment that the Bible gives us precise advice and tells us what we should do. And so I'm going to talk to you about the real Jesus and what he did in the exact situation I just described. But before I do, I would like to pray and welcome God's presence. Will you pray with me? God, um, you are powerful and you did something really different with your power. And God, as I look around this room and as I pray, I know there are people here that have so much potential and as they leave this place and as they continue to do what, God's, what you've called them to do, God, they're going to grow in their influence. And, God, I ask that you would speak to each person and help them to hear exactly what they need to hear from you today. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, we're going to be looking at a story from Jesus. And in the final days of Jesus' life, we read a story about Jesus and what he did with all his power. And before we do that, I want to give you a little background. Uh, the, Jesus and the disciples, they had been traveling around the country for three years. And uh, they had just arrived in Jerusalem, which was the capital city of Israel. So in today's modern world, it would be like Jesus and his 12 disciples showed up into Washington, D.C., our nation's capital. The center of Of political power and influence. And what we know from the story when Jesus arrives. Is that the people of Jerusalem begin to celebrate him as their king. And they're really excited that he's here. They've heard all these amazing stories. Jesus and the disciples were walking into rooms. Walking into situations. Hanging out by wells outside. And they would just heal everyone. And all these miraculous spiritually powerful things were happening. And the reputation had grown outside of Jerusalem so much that people were finally starting to believe that Jesus was the king that was foretold about, that he was going to come to Jerusalem. And he was going to rally the people and they were going to start a revolution and they were going to overflow, overthrow the Roman government that was occupying them. And so in order to celebrate him in, in a symbolic way, they threw their coats and outer garments on the ground and they took palm branches and they waved them and they threw them on the ground in front of him. And as he rode in the town on a donkey, they celebrated him as a revolutionary. And the palm branches that we talk about on Palm Sunday, that is a revolutionary act where they were celebrating Jesus, who should be their king. And uh, so, yeah, it was an inauguration. And if there, ever was an, if there ever was a time when Jesus and the disciples should feel powerful, it is in this moment now. If there ever was a time that the disciples and Jesus should feel entitled Now is the time. For three long years, they've been in the backwoods parts of the country. They've been in the places that, like, aren't that popular. And they were doing the hard work. And now they're finally coming in. the Capitol and everyone is giving them credit for all the hard work that they did behind the scenes. Everything that they had been working towards, it's finally starting to come together and the whole city shows up and throws a parade for your boss. That is a big deal. They were feeling the excitement and I don't know how you would feel if someone threw a parade for you you would feel like you had a little power. You would feel like things were going right in your way, your, for, your, for your life. And it's with these feelings, and it's in this situation, the context I just described, that we drop into the story that we're about to read. And what we read is a story that many of us have heard. Maybe if you haven't heard, it doesn't, doesn't really matter. I'm going to explain it anyway. It's the story of the Last Supper. And Jesus gathers everyone together, For a final meal, right after all this exciting stuff with the palm branches happens, uh, and everyone's coming into the city, uh, them coming into the city. And here's what we read in John 13, chapter 1. It says this, It was just before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Let's pause here. The writer who wrote this, his name is John. And he was giving the readers just a little taste of the things that were to come. Jesus recognized that there were forces in motion that were huge. And these forces were eventually going to lead him to his own death in the next 24 hours. We continue on in verse 2 and 3. It says this. The evening meal was in progress. And the devil had already prompted Judas the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Stop for a minute again. Let's hang out here. Jesus knew that God, his Father, had put all things under his power. Do you understand the gravity of that moment? All things we were under his power. Jesus knew that he was not only the most powerful person in the room, Jesus knew that he was the most powerful person in the whole world. He understood that he had the authority over the entire world and that he was entitled to everything in the world. So, what do you do when you realize that you're Jesus and you've got all the power in the entire world at your fingertips? What do you do when you realize that you have all the power in the relationships with the disciples at the dinner table? What do you do when you are finally validated that you are right, that you've always been right, and you have all the power in the world to make things right the way you see it? What do you do when it dawns on you that you are the son of God and you've got maximum power because you're the son of God? Here's what we read. So he got up from the meal. He took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. In the same moment that Jesus knew he had ultimate power, Jesus showed us that he was an ultimate servant. And I, in that same moment that Jesus knew that he had the ultimate leverage, the ultimate authority over the entire planet, what did he do? He got up from the table and he served the disciples. He did the job that nobody else wanted to do. And just, here's a little bit more about feet washing. Maybe you don't know much about it, so let me explain. So more about feet washing. This was a practice that was done on a daily basis. Now, in ancient Palestine, This was sort of a Birkenstock, sandals-wearing kind of culture. Everyone wore sandals everywhere. They walked everywhere. They didn't have the new LeBron James shoes. They had sandals. And so everywhere you walked, that's where you were. And all the things on the ground in ancient Palestine would get on your feet. Now, the stuff from animals would get on your feet. The stuff from people would get on your feet, and this was kind of like a desert region, so all the desert stuff would get on your feet, and your feet were dirty. Their feet were filthy, they were smelly, and usually the feet washing job was reserved for a servant or a paid employee. And this job was not reserved for, like, higher-ups. It was reserved for the lowest of the low, And it certainly wasn't a job for prominent men. And it certainly wasn't a job for a guy who just had a parade thrown in his honor. This is something really radical and something really extraordinary and completely countercultural to what his culture expected and what everyone in the known world expected at that time. But it's more than that. Jesus was setting the tone for greater things to come. In the next 24 hours, Jesus would be betrayed. He would be arrested. He would be mocked. He would be beaten. He would be tried in a sham trial that would happen in the middle of the night. So nobody found out about it. And then he would go far beyond washing the disciples feet. And he would willingly surrender himself to a Roman torture device known as a cross. And he would die In our place for our sins. See, Jesus was good. Jesus was powerful. Jesus was entitled to anything and everything. And he was right and he was perfect and he had all the power in the world to change his circumstances. Yet he chose to serve his fellow person, his fellow man, and his fellow woman by dying on a cross. And after the supper, after the feet washing, we read this is what Jesus says. He says, This. He says, Wanting us to go run around with bowls and wash people's feet all the time? No, it's a metaphor. Let me ask you a personal question. What do you do when it dawns on you? You're the most powerful person in the room. When you're the boss, when you've got all the relationships, when you finally get the promotion, or when you finally get that next promotion, because you've already been the boss and you're that good, and so everyone's just going to keep promoting you. What do you do when, you fi- when you're, that, uh, you're the most charming personality Los Angeles has ever seen. (laughs) And what do you do when you realize that you're the financial breadwinner in your relationship with your spouse? What do you do when it dawns on you that you're the most powerful person in the room? What we do is we follow Jesus' example. We serve those over whom we have an advantage. We serve the people over whom we have power. We give our power away. Followers of Jesus choose to give their power to serve others. They don't manipulate. They don't overplay their hand. They don't overpower everybody. They don't bulldoze and impose their will on everyone. They give away their power to people who don't have it. That's what Christians do. That's who we are. Christians wash Feet. We do dishes, we help people even though we're mad at them, we include weird people in our circle of friends, we give people money, we give away our money, we become generous, we use our wit and our brains and our smarts to help others get ahead. Husbands and wives, this means... That when your spouse, when things are unequal with your spouse, you choose to push through and serve the spouse. Even though you might feel like you're giving more than the other person. Friends, it means that you continue to love and care for your friends, your best friends, and your difficult friends. Even though you're entitled to get more out of the relationship. At work, this means that we find ways to serve our coworkers, our bosses, and our subordinates. Uh, for the duration of our time in the organization, regardless if we get what we want out of the relationship. And leaders, leaders in this church, this means that we do like Jesus did and we leverage our influence and we leverage our power for those who don't have any. And if you're committed to this idea and you find yourself in different situations Where you want to serve others, you feel like it's important, I want to encourage you to develop some attitudes and some habits. Uh, not only do these habits help us uh, to, to serve like Jesus, but they actually help us to just have healthier relationships. And if you're here today and you're not sure what you believe about Jesus, you're not sure if you believe that there's a God, I would encourage you to listen to what I'm about to share because I think it's just helpful for you in general. Uh, so listen up. So here's some habits to think about. Uh, uh, on your on your bulletin, you can follow along here. But I call them the ABCD attitudes of serving each other. ABCD attitudes are... And the first one is this, A, uh, assess your relationships regularly. Um, ask the question, who are my five or six closest friends? What do I do to serve them? How do I help them? How do I care for them? How do I regularly serve them in a way uh, that's more frequent? And where do I need to show them that I care about them? And sometimes I think what happens is we coast through life and we don't really assess our relationships, and we don't really kind of like think about if they're healthy or not healthy and where you're at. And so one of the ways to keep it healthy and to develop a servant's heart towards your friends is to assess who are my friends. Who am I spending time with? What do they need? A second thing, be be honest and upfront. One of the ways, one of the best ways to serve others is to not withhold how you actually feel or what you actually think. And I know this one can be a little tough. Sometimes serving others means that we're telling them uh, something that they do that might hurt us. Uh, Sometimes it means by serving others, it means that we have to tell them uh, that what they're doing is hurting themselves and hurting other people. And learning the art of being differentiated so that you can share the truth with people is just an important part of life. And sometimes... We don't know how to be differentiated. We're so concerned about what the other person might think about us or feel or do in reaction to what we say to them. We're unwilling to share the hard truths in the relationship. Now, I believe just as you do, there's a time and a place for everything. You just can't dump on everybody all the time. You will be alone and no one will be your friend. What you have to do or find the appropriate times to share these things with people. But some of us are not in that place. We're not trying to figure out what to say and what not to say. We're in the place of never sharing. We're in the place of never really being honest about what's going on in the relationship. And you you continue to let people hurt you. You let them walk all over you. And like God never, when he calls us to serve, he doesn't always call people. Part of, just to have people walk all over us, part of the differentiation is saying, look, what you're doing hurts. And like, I need you to stop it. You know, and so we've got to think through that. So part of serving people is not being a doormat. It's being honest about where you're at with people and up front. Um, I want to highly encourage this church to do this with love, with each other, We're 30, 31 weeks old. You know, it's hard for me to tell. I'm not good at math. Uh, And um, like, we need to be more honest with each other. And we need to tell each other what's really. And when we do that, there will be a little bit of conflict. But when we get through that conflict, it creates a greater sense of unity and understanding. Something that the world needs to see. So if we want this church to be healthier, we have to be willing to tell each other the truth. And once we tell each other the truth, people will see, man, that's something I want. And you, I know, if, you, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're always thinking of ways that you can lead people into life with Jesus, into a relationship with Jesus. Here's a real practical way. Start being honest with your other Christian friends. And let your, your friends who don't have life with Jesus in on that to let them watch you because it's, there's something healthy about being honest with each other. Enough. Uh, let's go to C. Contextualize your acts of service. Contextualize, what does that mean? Well, there's a great book for romantic couples, and it's called The Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman. And in this book, he had this really interesting idea where you talk about, um, you know, sometimes your spouse needs to receive love in ways that are different than you receive love. And so he talks about acts of service, or he talks about words of affirmation, or... um, and, or he talks about quality time. And his point was, look, just because, let's say, for instance, you like words of affirmation. You like people to tell you, like, oh, you're, I love you so much. You're the best in the whole way. Just because you like it doesn't mean that your spouse is the same way. Sometimes they need to hear things. Uh, they don't need to hear things. They need to see you do things. And so what you have are, like, when spouses get together and get married, you have one person that's like, I love you so much. They're like, well, if you love me, do the dishes. And the other person, and the other person like, is cleaning all the house. They're doing all the dishes. and They're scrubbing the floorboards. They're making it perfect. And the other person's like, that's great. But you know what? Why don't you buy me a gift every once in a while? And so, like, we miss each other. And so, Gary just, you know, Chapman just explains to us all, like, hey, you got to understand what your spouse needs and wants. In the same way, in a non-romantic way, we need to contextualize our acts of service. There's people in your life that need to be served. So start with serving them in ways that they will receive and understand. If you do it in ways that only you understand, it won't make sense to them. And if you're trying to serve them in a way that's helpful to them, try to do it in a way that they'll understand. That's what contextualization means. It means taking something and putting it into a context so somebody else can understand it. So contextualize your acts of service. That's, uh, so we have A, B, and C, and then D... Probably the most obvious, do what's obvious. What do I see that needs to be done right now? Oftentimes in church world, what we have is a problem. People are like, will come to a service like this and they'll say, well, you know, this is, this is it. This is finally the time I'm going to change and start serving people like really hard and, blah, blah, blah. and maybe you go for like a week or two and then you forget about it and you're back to your old ways. Uh, And the reason being is like, this isn't like an emotional thing. This isn't like you need to make all these huge changes in your life. You just need to make a simple commitment. And that commitment is to do what's obvious right now. The people you live with have things that they need you to do, (laughs) do what's obvious. There's people right now at your workplace. There's a few things hanging around. You see what's obvious. You know, what needs to be done. All you have to do is do the things. It isn't that complicated. So when we commit to do what's obvious, we're just doing what's right in front of us. And sometimes, like I said, we just make these big ordeals about how I'm going to serve and change and reach and like I'm going to grow and everyone's going to love and blah, blah, blah. But that's not the thing. You don't necessarily have to write the big check with your life all at once. A lot of times, doing what's obvious means showing up and writing a small check here and writing a small check. These are metaphorical checks. Like a small check, hey, I'm going to help with the dishes. Hey, I'm going to help move the couch thing. Hey, my roommate asked me to show up to the thing because uh, she's really excited about the thing with the thing. I'll do the thing. You do the thing, right? You do the small things. You write the small checks. You do the small acts of service. You do what's obvious. And you do what's being asked of you. That is a great way to serve the people around you. So those are the A, B, C, and Ds of serving each other practically. In closing, as I look around the room, I see a lot of potential. There's a lot of people who God is talking to and has his hand on. What do I mean by that? God is going to bless some of you immensely in your leadership and in your ability to be in front of others, to manage others. God's going to give some of you a bunch of money. And you're going to to be sitting on a big pile of money and you're going to wonder what to do with it. And I'd love for you to just remember this sermon. (laughs) (laughs) And when you are in the management position, when you're no longer in middle management, when you're in upper management, I want you to remember this talk. And when you are in your marriage, and when you're about to let the other person have it, I want you to think about this talk. This room has potential. In a room this size, I mean, I don't know how many people there are. I'm not good with numbers. Five, six thousand in this room right now. <laughs> it's so so crazy. It's hard to see with all the lights. But in this room, like we can affect our neighbors, our friends, the people we work with in our city. We're small but mighty. And we can have a real impact and change this city. And we can have a disproportionate impact on the rest of this country because this country pays attention to this city. So what you do with your power, it's not just about you, just little you. What you do matters for this church, for the city, and frankly, for this country. And you will come into that power sooner rather than later. God's going to give it to you. God, and you are a hardworking person, and that's going to happen for you. What are you going to do? What are you going to do with your power? I believe that when we choose to serve each other, when we give our power away, when we help those who can't help themselves, when we give away our power and lift others up, when we compliment others instead of bringing it back on ourselves, when we do everything That leadership too, when we lead like Jesus, it literally changes the fabric of our church. It changes the fabric of our city. It can change whatever weird work situation you're in right now, it'll change. Serving others is is an example of something called the upside-down kingdom. Jesus' kingdom isn't like normal kingdoms where you've got a scepter and a sword and you rule with an iron fist. The upside-down kingdom is opposite. Jesus doesn't take the up-escalator into, like, higher and higher realms of authority and power. He takes the down-escalator, and he serves everybody. And we know this works. We know this works because Jesus did something crazy. He went to the cross, and he died in our place for our sins demonstrating that he was going to take on the evil forces of this world and push them back and do the thing that we couldn't do ourselves. And so when he did that, and when he rose again on Easter, he demonstrated that he had power over the whole world, that he had all the power in the world, and it's totally different than what we would have expected. And so for many of us in this room right now, when we think about the choices we've made in our past, when we think about all the things that we've said, both publicly and privately, Jesus, we should reflect on Jesus, Jesus who had all the power in the world. He gave up his life to start something new, something that we can take and give to others. And so I want to encourage you, let's be the kind of church and let's be the kind of people who serve People who don't have any power. Let's give our power away in this room. Let's give our power away in our families and in our friends and in our work and in our neighborhood and so on. Let's do it together because that, my friends, that is the revolution that Jesus came to start. Amen? Amen. Why don't we all stand?